Trigger warning, this podcast contains a brief discussion about suicide and suicidality, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We've been at it about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. If you also like what we're doing here at Vent, please make sure to go to our Patreon and support us by going to www.patreon.com slash vent help uk or you can make one off donation to our gofundme i said i'd be taking a break from the gender culture wars however much like that famous quote in godfather part three i've been pulled back in by a couple more guests to get through before i really do take a break and listen to my own advice in this episode i'm checking in with a third male who has detransitioned who previous just checking in podcast tulip recommended eye contact N. Yorda is based in the US and detransitioned six years ago. He is 28 now and transitioned when he was 19 years old, where he spent two years living as a trans woman before detransitioning. Whilst presenting as female, he was on HRT, otherwise known as hormone replacement therapy, which was specifically estrogen and a testosterone blocker for a year and a half. N had lived with gender dysphoria from a very early age in childhood and managed it in secret throughout his childhood and teenage years but it did lead at times to suicidal ideation. He says that some of his mental health difficulties also stem from the relationship with his parents. N then began to experiment with hallucinogenic drugs in university, and during one of these experiences, he says he came to the conclusion that he wanted to detransition and present as male once more. Since then, he has been working through healing from gender dysphoria and his broader mental health, centering himself in his vision of masculinity and moving forward with his life. This was another really interesting and nuanced conversation and very different to the ones I've had with Tulip and Limpida. This is very much a conclusion to the triumvirate or trinity of episodes that I wanted to do with men who have transitioned and then detransitioned. They are also not a monolith and they all have very different value systems, political beliefs and approaches to life as I'm sure you'll find out if you've listened to all three of these episodes. I hope these stories provide a diverse range of episodes for you the listener to understand these stories of men who have detransitioned and the stigma they have experienced. So this is how my conversation with Enyorda went. Enyada, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. You will be my last guest who has detransitioned for a good while. I'm going to actually listen to my own advice and take a break from the gender wars. But, you know, this is your first podcast, I think. So thank you very much for doing this, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm honored. No worries, mate. I know you've got a very big podcast appearance coming up soon, which I won't mention on this podcast, but it will be coming yeah, out yeah. soon. And that will be a lot, a lot, a lot more higher listens and uh, views than mine, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm really interested in your journey, mate, as it's really different from Tulips and Limpida, who I've had previously on. I know you're, you're friends with them and you're aware of their journeys. And I really wanted to capture the sort of contrast between yours and those two journeys for the listeners so they can get a sort of range of experiences and diversity of opinions and values and belief systems. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show, mate? 
Let's start the pod by talking about your mental health journey. And so I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Enyada we meet here? I mean, should I go back like way early? Wherever you want to start, wherever you want to start. Well, yeah, I can definitely think back to my earliest memories and see that there were attachment issues that I think is what so much of this goes back to. For me, gender identity issues being kind of an alienation between my body and my mind, my body in the outside world, my mind in the outside world and other people, just kind of a sense that things don't match. And I mean, I might not want to talk about like my very earliest memories mm-hmm. just because they're a little personal, but there are a number of times that I can remember having a sense of gender identity struggles. I would say that it's hard to think about the mental health sort of content of some of my like earliest memories, other than that, like I noticed that there's these attachment issues. There's also my earliest memory of, say, meeting girls like my age as a little boy was there was a lot of kind of like almost fear and intimidation and admiration and just kind of like difficult feelings around females. I never had sisters. There was kind of this sense on the one hand that girls are just people like me. But on the other hand, that there's some sort of expectation in the world that Mm. like I'm supposed to treat them very differently and that I'm supposed to be, you know, just a certain way that I'm supposed to behave Mm -hmm. toward them and around them that's different. And I mean, to this day, I still think that on the one hand, there are lots of ways that that can be taken too far. There's lots of stereotypes. But at the same time, there is the reality that we're different. We do sometimes have to adjust our behavior accordingly. But then, you know, I can definitely say that in like early elementary school years, I can think back to just having like seemingly very random episodes of depression that just seem to have no like discernible cause. Like I can remember in the third grade being in library class we had and just this incredible like wave of depression that was attached to some like random inner mental movie that I was having that didn't even seem depressing. And I was like, this doesn't make sense. There's just this absurdity to the depression. It just kind of felt like there was a helplessness to it. It didn't seem to be attached to anything. I think it's because there was just a lot that was pressed down that I wasn't prepared to make sense of, but I couldn't possibly help but notice it, that Mm. I was feeling this depression. We're not going to talk too much about your parents and your relationship with them because of, of, of reasons that we've spoken about off air mate but just quickly you said that a lot of your mental health difficulties which you are comfortable discussing did stem from your relationship with them and you said you yes. were in different worlds from an early age in one of your Substack articles can you expand what you yeah. meant by that yeah I mean that's really important in a, a lot of ways we seem to be in different worlds I was in different worlds with my parents and my parents were both in different worlds from each other. I just, for some reason, never seemed to feel like a closeness to them. I didn't really feel comfortable with them in the way that, you know, I look back and I would expect that a child would kind of naturally feel a comfort to sort of turn to their parents. I oftentimes would turn to my parents out of complete necessity. It's not like I'm going to bring embarrassing and difficult things to anyone else. I guess I just have to bring it to them. But it was always reluctant and mixed with embarrassment and shame. And there was just the sense sort of that like there were these two adults. It sounds very sad, but it's like it kind of feels like I don't have the sense of like what it is like to have a mom and dad, like that kind of experience that it seems like other people do. And yeah, it just kind of seemed like there are these adults that take care of me and like they have to. And it's not like they're totally cold and uncaring, which is also weird. Like you might think that as I'm describing this, like they must be like very like cold and distant. But my mom certainly could be very distant, you know, even then not 
always. And my dad wasn't distant. He could be very angry, but he wasn't exactly a distant person. And that's part of what actually made so much of this very crazy making is that they seem like such normal people. And, you know, they are normal people. I'm not saying they're bad people, but there just wasn't a connection. And they seemed to feel like there was a connection. Like, it's not only that there wasn't a connection between us, there wasn't even a, an understanding between us about the fact that there was no connection between us. Right. So they had the sense of that things are fine. And, you know, I look back and I think, well, they obviously knew that some things were not fine. Like they had to, like they did get divorced, you know, when I was 18. They can look back and see that I was clearly emotionally distant and just not comfortable with myself and, you know, just all kinds of strange things about me. But I don't think that they really understood any much detail about it. Like it didn't seem like there was much curiosity of like, what's going on here? What are you struggling with? It just seemed like it was like, oh, you know, he's just kind of like that. And I love my son and he's, you know, that's just kind of the way that he is. And it's so, so it's like, okay, on the one hand, that's good. But on the other hand, like, why weren't you ever pursuing me? Like as a person, my, mm. you know, my heart, that's something I've really kind of like come to appreciate more recently is that it's such a good thing that it's totally natural as a child. You, uh, I heard someone put it this way, a, a psychologist that everyone comes into the world looking for someone looking for them. And it's like, that's just something core to our hearts. We can't divorce ourselves from that. At some really basic level, I didn't find that. I didn't find that that my parents were curious about seeking me out. And as I kind of look back on that, I think I start going, well, you know, but I didn't really like turn to them. I didn't really try to share myself. And something really important also that I've learned about that is actually I did. And like, that's actually like a human universal. It's like, as a child, you did do that. You did turn to your parents with your concerns, with your feelings. You did it over and over and over because there doesn't exist a child who doesn't have that instinct. You know, the question is, at what point did you stop doing that? You turned to your parents over and over and were rejected several times before you decided, I'm not going to allow myself to experience that again when I'm bringing my most personal feelings and so something happens there when even though there can be, you know, your parents can be very normal, apparently, but there's something in them that didn't want to know what was going on inside me, mm. that didn't want to deal with the baggage that I had to bring into the world. And so there's a lot of implications to that. I should be able to expect that of someone. Like it feels all kind of very entitled and selfish to me today as an adult kind of being like, why don't you pay more attention to me? But it's like, as a child, that's what your world consists of, is you have these parents who are everything to you. They're practically God to you. You come into the world. You're seeing the world through a lens of these people who brought you into the world. And to find out that not even they want to know certain things about you, your brain will reorganize itself to fit that reality. And you come into the rest of your life kind of prepared for this. You said that your parents had these very contrasting parenting styles and yes. they were giving you a lot of mixed messages. So on the one hand, you had your dad who was quite hyper-masculine, if I, I might be correct in saying, and sort of trying to force his vision or version of masculinity onto you whilst your mum was trying to feminize you with her version of femininity. And both of those could be wrong, both of those could be right. Mm -hmm. So who won and what impact did either of those have on your mental health and your perception of masculinity and femininity? I think as with everything, it, it is very complex. But if I was to, on the surface of it, say like who won, I would say it was clearly my mom. I'm still figuring out exactly what my mom's role was in all of this. She wasn't by any means like a 
feminist, like a radical feminist, you know, I would say that she would describe herself as a feminist, but not in like a very like, you know, it's not like she's like an activist or, or really active in anything. I think she had a fairly kind of mainstream sort of Democrat party, you know, feminism. And looking back and thinking of like, how exactly did she affect me? I am still trying to figure it out, but I know that there was a backlash to what my dad was doing. And yet my dad was kind of responding to what she was doing and to what he was expecting society was going to do. I guess I kind of grouped my mom in with sort of the societal influences too, which were much more liberal. I grew up in a kind of a New England town where there was just a lot of casual narrative of like social progress that were like moving away from the patriarchy and finally creating equality for men and women. And there are a lot of implications that come into that. And I'll get into that more in a bit. But I guess with my parents, my dad was trying to really masculinize me and it was very forced, even though he was a rather masculine man, I think he had a certain amount of insecurity about it too. But I think what my dad observed, he both observed and anticipated that society and my mom were kind of trying to feminize me. And I actually think that there was truth to that. But then he got all kind of anxious about that. And he was worried that I was going to be feminized probably more than I would have actually been. And then he also would used to tell me things about how like he grew up in rural Florida, where kids were like really nasty, and they'd, you know, beat you up and take your lunch and steal your bike and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure that he had to deal with that. And so like, he wanted to prepare me for the world. And I think that that's right. I'm glad that he wanted to prepare me for the world. I'm glad that he, you know, wanted to teach me to, you know, how to do like manual labor and stuff like that. But I just like hated all of those things. I really kind of resented a lot of that because it was presented to me in this way that came out of his insecurity. He really was noticing how my mom and society were sort of like discouraging masculinity and certain things like associated with like male behavior. But he also didn't like look around him and kind of see like my son is kind of growing up in New England and not rural Florida and like kids aren't that way. And he always used to say too, like all the other boys are so nice, like they're not beating each other up. So on the one hand, like he kind of already knew that he wasn't really preparing me for the type of world I was going into. He was preparing me for the kind of world that he went into. But he also observed it well enough to notice that there was this feminizing influence and sort of this discouragement of boys playing around and wrestling and things like that. I could like sense all of the insecurity and the anxiety from him about that. And so he would double down on it and sort of be like, yeah, like, you know, manly stuff. He would almost like phrase things like that. Like, don't you like to do manly things? And it's like, who talks that way? But then my mom would be like, oh, you know, that's terrible. Like, don't, you know, encourage him to do these things, things that seem dangerous to her, or, you know, he would show me like war movies when I was really young. And so then there was this suspicion around everything that got associated with masculinity, even though some of those things were not necessary things for me to be interested in. So there kind of became this feeling that masculinity is dangerous, and it's a nuisance, and that things that are associated with men are dangerous and nuisances. You know, I would say that the distaste that it left with me about masculinity, it came with an embarrassment about anything that was feminine, but it also left me with the feeling like I want to be feminine. Femininity is the good stuff. Like that's the cool, beautiful, good part of life. And so even though it came with this embarrassment about femininity, it created this narrative that femininity was the good part and that the behavior that were natural to me that were masculine, that would have just been a part of me, if masculinity wasn't so forced on me, I would have embraced, I can now look back and see, like I would have embraced 
these things associated with masculinity, but it took forever for me to recognize that. I just want to go back to your gender dysphoria before we move on to how you were in middle school and high school, mate. One way you said you expressed the gender dysphoria, but you masked it from suspicion was through this role playing game that you played with your brother. Can you tell the listeners about that and how you managed to mask it through it? Yeah, I had this very particular memory of when I I must have been five or six years old, I think it was five. And I would just, you know, come up with games with my older brother. He and I always just making things up off the top of our heads. And one time I came up to him and I said, hey, I've got this game. And the rules of the game are that one person has to be a boy and the other has to be a girl. And well, you're my older brother, so I won't make you be the girl. So I'll be the girl. Like I just spontaneously like said that because I just wanted to act out being a girl but I didn't actually have a game in mind. I was like pretending like, oh, these are the rules that are being imposed on me. I didn't come up with this. Those are just, you know, so, okay, yeah, now I I can behave like a girl and there's no suspicion. But it was like I was looking for some sort of a reason to express things that I thought were feminine or associated with girls. Let's fast forward to middle school and high school now. So you've bottled this gender dysphoria and you've kept it a secret since that role-playing game we just spoke about. So who's the M we meet here and how does your journey go from this point? Like I said, I can see these glimpses from my very early life of how I was like trying to find some reason to express femininity or to be like a girl, quote unquote. And yeah, I really bottled that up through, you know, later elementary school, middle school. You would have definitely thought that I was like any typical straight boy. And in a lot of ways I was because I was crazy about girls. I was kind of overwhelmed by femininity, by my attraction to femininity. But I was also very depressed and anxious as maybe middle schoolers are. But I was pushing down a lot that that sort of this gender issue was bound to blow up at a certain point. You then had a conversation with a friend one day where you were talking about being gay, not you yourself, but just kind of homosexuality in general. And you were saying to each other, you know, what's the problem with being gay? And you then went to the school's Gay Straight Alliance group, which is a popular thing in America. And you started to educate yourself about the LGBT community. And you then said to me, you began to see yourself as quite androgynous and somewhere between male and female. But as you said, you were still always attracted to women. So was there a confliction here about your sexuality at all? Yeah, I was I was conflicted. Everything seemed so up in the air in terms of gender identity and sexuality. Like I identified as bisexual when I was in high school, pretty much from the start of high school. And yeah, like you said, I sort of fluctuated around like sometimes it felt like, you know, it would be appealing to be if I was a girl, but it was sort of like, but I'm not. So like seemed to make more sense to say that I was somewhere in between. Maybe I didn't have a gender, maybe gender doesn't exist. Or if it does, then I'm kind of both at the same time in a lot of ways. There was another point where you asked yourself, why don't I get to be like the other girls? How strong a desire was this? And was autogynophilia ever something that came into your mind or was it purely strictly Mm. gender dysphoria Mm. yeah I think so when that thought really hit me was when I was about 17 when it like really just occurred to me like what if I was a girl and it was sort of like when that thought occurred to me that was like it kind of snapped in and I was like whoa wait a second that would have been so much better wouldn't it have been and it was just kind of this very depressing sort of like impossible situation there's nothing really to do about that And the things that came to mind about that were always how I would be treated socially. And it wasn't to say that I thought that everything would be better, uh, like that it's easier to be a girl or that it's easier to be a woman, but that women 
are better and that it would have fit me better too. And so autogynephilia, I would say that I have those kind of tendencies and that I had them. I hear when people talk about autogynephilia, it seems like they're usually talking about it as being like the source of why they wanted to transition. And people will say, oh, I see you have autogynephilia, like that's why you transitioned. And it just doesn't seem that way at all. To me, it seems pretty clearly like I wanted to see myself as female and, you know, I wished that I was female and therefore that's the way that I would prefer to imagine my sexual fantasies too, is to be female. So I I would say it's there. And granted, I haven't read up that much about the whole autogynephilia issue, but that's the way that it generally seems to Mm. me. One thing before we talk about the transition that you wanted to talk about, May, and it's something that has affected you a lot in middle school, and it's something that you bravely admit you're still struggling with, is porn addiction. So why Mm -hmm. did it affect and why does it affect your mental health so much? Yeah, I mean, in so many ways. And I would have to say, like, this is still an ongoing struggle for me. I'm fine being open about that. But it's also, you know, something that I may lack a certain amount of insight because I'm still working on it. But from what I've learned about it, it's very much a way of of escaping pain. And it's also a way of confirming one's own helplessness. And, you know, like I'm stuck here with this addiction and I'm just like, I'm a bad person. It not only serves to soothe the pain, but it also serves to sort of reinforce itself. Like this is the best that you can really hope for. Don't think that you're going to really like get through this because you're not that good of a person. This is kind of the best that you've got. And so we do kind of use it to confirm from what I've been learning, like we use it to confirm our shame as well as soothe our shame. And one of the terrible, I mean, impacts for me is like, I was already so nervous around girls, as I mentioned, somehow I felt like I identified with something in them. But on the other hand, like, you know, I sort of fit the stereotypical sort of like male sense that like women are mysterious and like, ooh, you know, I don't understand them and I never will. Of course, I didn't want to think that I would never understand them. Now I I think realize on a more realistic level that I don't understand women because I'm not a woman and they have their own experience. But at the same time, like they're just people and they're just as potentially flawed as I am. But I guess because that was already such a difficulty for me that the nerves around girls, that kind of set the stage for me to be so drawn to pornography. And then that just worsened the problem because now I'm even more nervous around girls because it's hard to really separate sort of what goes on in your mind sometimes with what's going on around you. You're a middle schooler and you're excessively horny and just figuring this stuff out and you have all these thoughts going on in your head and then there's all these girls around you and they don't know what's going on in your head, but like you just feel like this discord with everybody else because of what's going on inside. And and that matches with the general like problem that I've often had is this sense of alienation between what's going on inside me and what's going on outside me. And I think that I have this sort of tendency to feel like somehow I'm like radiating horny thoughts in my mind to all the girls around me or something, or that somehow people can see what I'm feeling like an open book on my face. So I, I was very, very socially paranoid in middle school and high school, and I still struggle with that, but not nearly to the same extent. Let's talk about your transition, because like you said, you had that clear first desire to do so age 17. But at the time, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that you thought it was 100% what you wanted to do and the choice to make, something still didn't quite add up. Can you explain that contradiction? Yeah, it's weird. I mean, that fits the way that, that I am with so many things. But, you know, like I said, when that thought hit me, it was sort of like, 
yeah, wow, like things would have just been so much better if I had been born female. And yet I really had only vaguely heard about transgenderism. Like I knew that it existed. It seemed like an incredibly unsatisfying idea. It was like how much work you would have to put into that and you still have your bone structure mm. you still you know so it felt I, like a last resort me, at that point for you is that correct i don't know if i would even put it that way like right. it, at least at this point it was sort of just like how seriously can i really entertain this thought it was quite abstract yeah. yeah yeah even though the feeling was like right there like that yes like i wish that i was born female it's sort of like how can i even be entertaining that thought like what am i gonna do with that thought it's not like i'm gonna transition until later i would eventually find out that maybe that did seem like a, an option but at first i was just like there doesn't seem to be any practical way to resolve this sort of feeling i'm just very very depressed about it that i you know it just occurred to me that it's like a 50 50 chance i had to be a man you spoke there about overthinking and it's something that has obviously affected you quite a lot and tulip mm -hmm. on his podcast described this feeling of overthinking in relation to gender dysphoria and transitioning in quite a obvious way and something quite maybe not extreme but certainly something that i hadn't heard of before called trans ocd is that something that you would share any commonality with yeah i think i did read what he wrote on that and i thought it matched a lot of my experience the obsessiveness behind gender dysphoria and i guess like to the extent that that we're thinking of like trans ocd like feeling trans as an obsession like i feel like that's just what gender dysphoria is mm. You know, that it's a way of latching on the very difficult feelings that you don't know what to do with onto gender and saying, like, that's why I feel all these things. That's why I feel so bad. And like I said, I dealt with so many extremely difficult feelings that I just had no idea what to do with. Like, I'm still a ridiculously emotional person. I can't handle the amount of emotions that I deal with. And I sometimes am just like, feel like I'm just like throwing up emotions sometimes. I just like have to do that from time to time. There was a time when I couldn't get through the thought process in my gender dysphoria. I would get stuck in a kind of obsessive thought loop. And I, I struggled with this even after I detransitioned. It was like this was when I had to actually now confront this problem. Like there's this temptation to want to latch on to this answer that, oh, that's why I feel this way. And so I would just go, I want to be a girl, but I'm not. But I want to be. Yeah, but I'm not. But no, but like, I want to be like, that's not the, the you, you don't, you're not hearing me. Yeah, no, I am hearing you. It's just that you're not, there's nothing to do about it. I'm like, there has to be something to do about it, right? Because this isn't okay. I'm like, there, no, I mean, I wouldn't be able to get out of that loop because it was just an impossible, it was a literally impossible scenario. When you have something like that, it's this walled off area in my mind. Let's move forward to college now. And you go to the college counseling center and you tell that therapist, that you have depression and anxiety, which we've spoken about earlier in the pod. Then you decide a little bit into the sessions to bring up your issues around gender identity and gender dysphoria. So tell the listeners what happened next. I went to my college counseling center just saying like, you know, I've got this inexplicable depression and anxiety and, you know, I want to address what's behind it. And so I said there are a number of things that seem to be some major themes around it. And one of them I brought up was that I feel like I'm a woman inside and that I have a hard time like accepting that I'm not or that I'm male. And I didn't exactly know how to put it really, but I was like, I've got something going on like this. Uh, I feel very strongly about 
but I don't really know what to call it. I don't know if this is real or if there's something behind it. Like, I'd like to get an idea, you know, can this be resolved? You know, I, I think I was pretty open to that. Like, it, maybe I am trans, but, you know, maybe this is just a very convincing feeling that I can't seem to figure out what would be behind it. And when I said that, the counselor said, this is a really a, a serious issue that I think that you're going to want to look at head on. Like, you know, we, we don't want to put this off. Uh, in fact, this is a very specific kind of issue. And they recommended that I seek out a therapist who specializes in gender identity issues and trans issues. And so when they brought that up, I was kind of like, oh, well, that's interesting. I thought that, you know, I was being, you know, responsible saying like, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but like, hey, I've got this mental health professional who's telling me that actually, like from what we know today, this is a, you know, very likely thing that if you're feeling this way, you might be trans. And they weren't telling me that I was, I wouldn't even say that they really pushed me, but it was because they had that professional sort of official stamp on what they were saying, that it was like, this is what the mental health professionals say, you know, and I must admit, like the idea of transitioning is extremely appealing given that there's no way to become female at least there's that and just being a guy like that's not what I want so that just solidified the option of transitioning versus exploring it and I thought you know why keep doubting this if I keep doubting these feelings then I guess I'm kind of just delaying the possibility of fully transitioning and, and fully integrating my transition into the rest of my life after you stop delaying it you socially transitioned first and you socially transitioned for six months before you went down the medical pathway but on this social transition process you spoke very honestly to me off air that you never thought it would be quote-unquote easier to be a woman but you did naturally have some degree of idealization of what it'd be mm -hmm. like tell me about that idealization and why did it give you hope because that was another powerful thing you said to me off air yeah, I guess there's a couple of idealizations. There's the idealization of women, and then there's the idealization of the transition process. You know, unlike what a lot of people say, maybe it's the case that there are men who transition and they just think that being, you know, a woman is easy mode. Like I've come across that thing and women can be very rightly angry about hearing that sort of thing. They're like, what are you talking about? You know, invalidating all of our struggles, saying just, that it's yeah. easy to be a woman. Oh, just, like, just, I, like, I there's, there's probably the reverse as well. There's probably women who might feel right. gender dysphoria and think, oh, it's very easy to be a man because they might think, right. well, men have it easy when actually if they might transition yep. fully and pass, there's a lot of issues that we face as well. <laughs> yep. I mean, that is so unrecognized too. It's very easy to, to miss that. Like, it's like, sorry, you've never been a man. I'm telling you might look easy, but you know, it's not, at least it's not for me. And I know that it's not for a lot of other men. So yeah, I mean, like, I feel like my idealization of women actually rested on the premise that women have it harder than me, that women have it harder than men. It's sort of like, wow, they're so strong. They have to deal with this stuff. They have to deal with men objectifying them, with people um, infantilizing them and all this stuff when really they're equally as, as intelligent and equally as, you know, maybe they're not generally as physically strong, but like they have everything else that men have. And so like the fact that they've had to put up with that and now they're still like pretty much up here with men, that just shows an even greater strength. There was this admiration that I had for women and a guilt because of all of that that I had for being a man. I always felt very inferior among women. Part of that being maybe just a straight man's intimidation of women, but there was also just this sense of like, that women, they've been through more, they're more compassionate, maybe because of their natural gifts, but also because they've had to deal with 
the things that they do. I tended to see them as being more down to earth, more like kind of common sense. They're not taken up by like these grand schemes and sort of I'm going to ignore my family so that I can like discover, you know, something great or something like that. It's a, sort of a trope that was in my mind about men and that I could see in myself too, being an obsessive person who wanted to like have these great projects. And I felt like women were more down to earth. I generally observed women to be more concerned with like, if somebody is, you know, hurting, go and like take care of them or paying attention to the things that are in front of them was a kind of a major sort of way that I perceived women. And, you know, I sometimes think that there's some truth to that, but I certainly idealized women a lot. And I've, I've realized that, I mean, there's so much prejudice toward men that it's like really not cool to say in our society and that women can be extremely bigoted toward men. And it's just like, that's because they're people. I'm not having like some sort of misogynistic backlash. I'm just like being realistic. You know, I'm not supposed to idealize women. I'm supposed to actually recognize some of these things that I was actually having it harder as a man. That's what I was trying to run away from was the disgust that I felt at being a man and the kind of expectations, not just expectations of what I should do, but like other people's expectations of what I would do or how I must be because I'm a man. I must not, you know, really be that concerned about other people. I must not really be understanding of like what minorities and what women have to face, you know, take myself too seriously or the, the major fear being like seen as threatening. And yeah, I mean, that's ultimately really the deepest fear is to be perceived as like a sexual predator. And that's what I was trying to get away from. And I guess that was part of the idealization of transitioning is I won't have to deal with that anymore because people won't see me as a man. They'll stop being suspicious of me. And I don't really even know how suspicious people actually were of me. I think that I faced that to some extent and I found it so intolerable and it made me feel so disgusted with myself that I was like perpetually on guard about that. But I don't actually know how, how many people mm. actually had that kind of suspicion toward me. I do think that women tend to have a certain on-guardness around men that they don't know, which I think is perfectly reasonable. It makes sense. Like, you don't know this man, so you're not going to assume that he's dangerous. You also can't really assume that he's not dangerous. So I would be just extremely sensitive to that sort of thing. I might have understood why, but it didn't really change the fact that it reinforced, like, I'm a man and that men have this effect on others. And while it did alleviate that somewhat when I transitioned, this was 2014, 2015, maybe before this got so controversial, so I didn't run into rad femmes or anything like that. But I did get the sense that women were gentler toward me and more trusting of me when I transitioned, and I didn't have to worry about these things. And I put off the whole idea of ever dating women completely out of my mind. I was like, I just don't want that to ever, ever arise as a possible sort of discord between me and women. I just want to be able to be friends with them. I wasn't into guys really, but I wasn't bothered by the idea of being with men. So when I transitioned, I was dating men. And even then, that didn't actually get rid of just the social sense that everybody has that I'm male. And that I have about myself that I'm male. So I mean, there's so there's so much to say there I won't go into. But that was what I was really hoping when I began transition. And there are certain extremely subtle reasons why we can't really bypass the way that men and women are inevitably treated differently. I want to talk about medical transition, because you did that when you were 19. 
and you did HRT or hormone replacement therapy, specifically estrogen and a testosterone blocker, which I can't pronounce the name of, so I'm not going to name it on here. You can if you want. You were on that for a year. Yeah, that's the one. You were on that for a year and a half, mate. And interestingly, unlike some men who have detransitioned, you actually liked being on HRT in a lot of ways, even though it wasn't physically a good experience for your body, you said. So what did you like and explain that contradiction? And and what was the impact on your general sexual, mental, physical health too? So I think I probably wasn't on it long enough for it to have a lot of those physical health problems that a lot of D-trans men have had who've been on it maybe two, three, four or more years with like bone problems I've heard about and then like sexual dysfunction. So, you know, I pretty much just have like small breasts and a low sex drive and my skin changed and, you know, fat redistribution. So, I mean, the main things that I noticed was I think I was a little bit more emotionally free and I noticed certain changes emotionally. But yeah, the main thing that I I loved about it was that it took my sex drive down to about 10%. For me, that was such a massive relief. I think that that probably more than anything was even the reason why I felt emotionally free because it was sort of like now I can behave naturally around people particularly women and not feel like my like inner experience is like freaking me out and that I'm going to project something wrong to other people and also that I'm just you know I'm not distracted and like weighed down by this hypersexuality that I've always kind of dealt with um, ever since puberty. Why did you decide against surgery then? Yeah so for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm kind of terrified by surgery. I just think surgery, I mean, it just, it disturbs me. I can't even listen to people talk about surgery. I can't fathom why it is that some people like look up videos about it and stuff like that. I just, I can't. Your squeamishness saved you then basically. Yeah. Yeah, In a way it really did. On the other hand, like, I mean, it was sort of like, I didn't a hundred percent rule it out, but I was like, I'll maybe come back to this like years down the road. I did want to get electrolysis and I wanted to get my Adam's apple shaved down because I was concerned about my face. That was the main thing. Like even when I was on a dating site at that time, I think that I wrote that I was celibate or something like that. I think I wrote like, I want to date. I don't want to have sex. Maybe, uh, you know, do some sexual things, but not like, I don't want to have sex. And so like, I was kind of scared of sex you know, weirdly, even though like I had struggled before then with a porn addiction, but now my libido was way down. So it was, yeah, I just kind of wanted to just be comfortable and like not have the anxiety of sexuality be a part of my life. I just decided I'll have to find someone who I can share my life with who doesn't really want that. Tell me about the detransition process now. So when did you realize that trans wasn't something you no longer wanted to identify as was it gradual or was it more of a eureka moment in some ways it was both but there were some real eureka moments there were definitely stages i mean there was one day in particular i had begun to tell you about i was using lsd at that time i was exploring religions i had always been an atheist throughout high school i was raised catholic very nominally nobody really took it that seriously until my dad became very devout later on but you know, I was an atheist throughout high school and early college. And, you know, eventually I felt like I did need something and more like Eastern religions kind of appealed to me, uh, read the Tao Te Ching. And I really tried to take that very seriously. Then I started experimenting with psychedelics. How was that? <laughs> you know, I have very mixed views on it. It's something that I really don't recommend to anyone. It sort of doesn't jive with my religion exactly now, but I don't deny the value of a lot of what I experienced. I experienced what I experienced. And so I'll take what I what I got from it. And 
I reacted really well to LSD, people noticed. <laughs> um, I be, like became very sociable. I would walk around town. I would just be like, hey, you know, just this is fun. Like I'm going to just explore stuff. And I would be introspective, but I also could just like get up and just like do things. Why was that so important for the listeners? Were you very much the opposite before that? But yeah, I guess I didn't really mention. I, yeah, I've always been extremely like socially anxious and timid and just have weird sort of behaviors where like, have trouble sort of with proximity around other people physically with my body or like where to look at people and things like that. And I would take LSD and I'd walk down the street and I would like look at people in their cars as they're driving by. And I would be like, they don't even all want to look at me. Like I'm not uncomfortable. Like I can just like, you know, look around and just like, it felt very fluid. You know, I got a lot out of those experiences and I tried a few other psychedelics, but it was, it was mostly LSD was available to me. And there were these three really critical sort of trips that I took that summer toward the end of that two years of transitioning. I uh, tripped with a friend of mine, this woman, who was very good friend, but kind of in her own world. She had really bad memory problems. She had a lot of other mental health problems and things. And actually, I recently, recently got in touch with her. She's doing a lot better, uh, which is great. But she had every intention of affirming my identity. She treated me like one of her girlfriends. And I loved her and she loved me. And it was just very kind of sweet sort of friendship. But then, you know, I dropped acid with her. And man, there was just so much that happened during this particular, I mean, there's so many like volumes condensed into a short amount of uh, short Give me the Joe Rogan. Of, Give me the DMT yeah, Joe the, Rogan version. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like what, what are the critical points was basically... I mean, I'll just give somebody, the, the first thing that jumps to mind, is, I mean, is basically, I mean, one thing was like, well, all of these conflicts about the transition were happening, just bubbling in the back of my mind, you know, am I doing this because of some kind of like a trauma response? It was some sort of a corrective thing in my mind to have this identity to sort of work out things that happened in the past. But I was like, I don't know, I don't really have any trauma in my past, which I now know that I do. Lots of people, you know, say that for a very long time before they start to realize that they have trauma in their past. There was one moment where I like had this, you know, really great big cry that just came out very freely and she was there for me. And as that day went on, I started noticing like, wow, she's, she's incredibly beautiful. Like she's one of the most, she's actually like one of the most beautiful women I know. I didn't want to think that I was like, you know, very uncomfortable with that. Cause I'm like, I'm trying to be like, you know, friends with her. I'm trying to, you know, we're, we're girlfriends here. And now this is like making me feel my maleness. And just in the, in sort of the character of the way that we interacted with each other, even just in the way that we kind of like were friendly and admired each other, I began to have this sense that as the trip was reaching its peak, that she and I were like Adam and Eve. I had this feeling that we were like this primordial man and woman. That's some serious and LSD shit. <laughs> it, it really was. And, and I had already had that sense in other trips of being sort of just this generic sort of human being. And I usually took all my trips very solo. I would just go off by myself into the woods or in my room. I noticed like I just felt like this like human being. It was just like great. I felt sometimes kind of androgynous and other times it was like there's no reference to gender at all anyway. But then here I am being social. And this is a key thing for me is that like we can't separate ourselves from being social. We're not atomized individuals. You know, we are individuals. I value the individual, you know, above anyone's role in the collective, but we can't separate our individuality from the society that kind of raised us into the world. We bounce off our perceptions off of other people, and that's how we gain our own sense of self. So I can't separate myself from other people like that. I just started to really like notice 
how much I can't help but feel like a man when I'm talking to her and that I feel this attraction to her. And, you know, and again, like I said, she had really bad memory problems. So she would like oftentimes forget, you know, the things that I had said to her about my transition. And she would just kind of, you know, treat me how it was natural to her, which like, why shouldn't she? I don't know. I, I at times, because of her, her own difficulties, I felt very sort of like fatherly toward her. And someone could say, well, you know, why don't you just say that you felt parently toward her and that you could just interpret that as being, you know, motherly? Or, you know, if you had this attraction to her, why couldn't you say that you were a lesbian or something like that? Because the character of that experience was always tied to what I knew a man to be. It was it male attraction. Flowed, yeah. Yeah. Both flowed from the reality of my body and it corresponded to my socialization. And I don't think that the two can ever be separated. And so, yeah, just having all of these thoughts bubbling in the back of my mind during this trip, you know, then I would go and take a break and be by myself and I'd be contemplating things and I'd start like thinking about how like maybe, you know, she and I were flirting and the, then I start having these ideas about how like I want to have a baby. I know that's really like weird, but it's like when you're on LSD, like, you know, you're getting like right to the point, like your thoughts are very pop right up. Well, I was just like, talking to this woman who I wasn't really prepared to be attracted to. And like, now I want a baby. Sometimes That's a big the jump. process goes. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm like, what's going on there? And, you know, later on, she goes away for a little bit. And I was looking at myself in the mirror. I had all of these thoughts going on about kind of what felt like really intrusive thoughts. Um, a lot of them about like the fear of like deep down having sort of these male predatorial things in me that I wanted at all costs to not identify with. And I had this sense of like, well, you know, maybe the only way that I can reconcile all of this is to just like admit that I was wrong and that I just like have to be this very stereotypical man who's going to do all of this, who's going to, you know, do manual labor just because that's the thing that I hated as a kid was doing manual labor. It was like these intrusive thoughts, sort of like that that's what I maybe I have to be. And I thought that's probably an intrusive thought, which obviously was. There was some truth in there, too. And so to be sure about that experience with LSD, I don't put too much stake on like just an individual experience of, you know, a trip because they're all very hyper specific and mythological and very free associative and things like that. But I think the point of all of that was that they were these thoughts that like I didn't give myself a chance to really like think through. And that now like I had a moment where I was very like accepting and willing to go along with the experience and just entertain some of these thoughts that like maybe there is something about me that I can't get away from about being male and that maybe I should start to consider that. So it was an experience which I from then on could reflect on. In fact, I did even have a moment where I like said to myself, like, wait a minute, I'm a man. But then I went back afterward and I said, well, maybe that was just kind of me just having a moment there. But what it did was it provided me later on time that I could reflect and consider these things for the first time and start to find that it actually did make sense that the things I experienced were actually corresponded to to real life. Speaking about that return of those feelings, mate, in one of your Substack articles, you write that three years after you tried to detransition or successfully detransition, your GD came back and it led to some suicidal ideation. So how did you mm -hmm. feel in that moment? And given what you said there, did you feel like you had the tools to deal with it? Yeah, in the same token, still having to go back and reflect on, on these things and not just be like, it's over, but now is the time that I'm actually going to deal with these things. For a long time, I was using transition to kind of keep all of that at bay. 
And so in some ways, detransitioning becomes a more painful process at first, because I'm aware now of a certain fact that I can't overcome, but I also don't know how to overcome it. So I'm sort of just like stuck here, but forced to now confront this. And yeah, for a while, I just wanted to sort of be done with thinking about gender. I'm kind of glad that I did. I pushed it off. I said, you know, this, it's just exhausting thinking about gender. There's something about it that's so irresolvable. I just want to, you know, just accept that, you know, my body is the way that it is. Just let it do what it does. If I make a manly grunt when I lie down or get up, you know, out of my chair, like it doesn't matter. Like just let myself kind of, you know, do these little things that, you know, micromanage everything about me. And so that was a really a relief. Like that gave me time to just kind of like be happy with that. But I still had all of the reasons behind why I wanted to transition in the first place still with me. All of the attachment issues and self-image, just self-hatred that eventually was going to have to come up. And, and the ways the ways that I don't really fully allow myself to be content, to relax, to share my needs with others without feeling guilty about it, to sort of feel proud about certain things about my good qualities or just relax, like having a relaxing night without feeling guilty about it. So all these things started to kind of come back up, you know, about like three years after I detransitioned, because it's been seven years now. I know I said six before, but as of this summer, it's been seven. And yeah, about like three years ago, like gender dysphoria, just it hit me like as hard as ever. And I realized like, whoa, I haven't actually dealt with this fully. And I would just yeah get stuck again in that like thought loop of I want to be a woman, but I'm not, but I want to be, but I'm not. And, you know, driving me crazy. Like it was like, if the thought just occurred to me, like as soon as the thought occurred to me, like that this is a problem that I have, I would just start immediately thinking that way and just plunge into this spiral. And there were some like months on end like that. It was partly because I had had some major life changes, changes of plans, and I moved somewhere and I didn't have any friends or support. And I didn't mention too, but I mean, I converted to Catholicism right around the time that I detransitioned which might require some explanation at some point if we get to it. But that has been like my guiding light in life. But that's not to say that it was a mental health program. That's that's not what religion is. It intersects with psychology and, and mental health, but mental health is still very much its own thing. And so like around that time, I returned to school. That was what was going on. I, I went back to school. It took me a while to meet some friends, but eventually I did, you know, meet a good group of friends, became closer to one or two of them. I got, you know, a therapist. It was right around that time that I joined a uh, DTrans Discord server. And so those three are really critical for me. But it seemed at first when gender dysphoria was really hitting me again, it seemed to me like, I guess this is just something I have to bear because nobody has any idea how you're supposed to deal with this. And I mean, the sad thing is like, in a lot of ways, like, I mean, there's still not really clear advice out there about how you're supposed to deal with it. Like it's very trial and error and it's getting better. Like I think that if somebody is really, really confused and they're just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it, like come to the Reddit DTrans Discord server or whatever, because you'll hear perspectives that you're just not gonna hear anywhere else about how different people have dealt with it. And people have dealt with it in different ways according to their needs, but you'll probably pick up on something that would be relevant. And it is necessary for it to be a certain amount of trial and error, partly because it has to be exploratory for you personally. There's not exactly one way to deal with it, but I think it comes down to getting into the specifics of what's behind it for you. And it's probably going to have to do with your story. It could be because of something very specific that you deal with. It might be because you have a genuinely gender non-conforming personality, or it might be because 
you have difficulty with social things, like I hear there's a lot of connection with autism, but it's still going to likely have a lot to do with your story. And especially if there is that sort of obsessive component where you're using this trans ID to keep painful things about you, feelings that you have about yourself at bay so you don't have to look at it. It's going to really involve getting into the specifics of your story. I mean, it's, it's the things that are painful that we don't want to look at, but that once we do, we start to realize like, okay, it's not that bad. Like, you know, this is the way that I am. This is the body that I have. So I guess, I, you know, I would say what got me through that time while it was a combination of, you know, having these support systems, real in-person, genuine friendships, you know, a good therapist, if you can find one who will kind of see eye to eye with you about it and the D-trans community, you know, I started to get more of a, a sense of that I can take a look at what's going on inside me and I'll come through it. And I did bring this into prayer. That was really kind of like what crowned this off is, you know, my faith carried me through a lot of really difficult times, but I needed to join that to my social life. And when it came time to be introspective and to deal with this on my own, which I still had to, to an extent, I brought it to God. I took my overwhelming feelings and something that I oftentimes find myself doing is I turn to God and I say, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I just, I don't know what to do. Just be with me, help me. And I would just, you know, pour out my feelings, just these feelings that I couldn't get out you know, I would do that and I would realize I can feel just the ugly, hor just the horrible, ugly feelings of looking at the fact that I'm male and I'm just, I'm going to be male. And I'm just stuck with that. Like I can sit with those feelings because, because God is with me and other people are with me. And so I think, you know, even if I'm not fully making the connection with like why that is, I think that people can get the sense that it's very important how this relates to relationships you know, we want to transition because we want other people to see us a certain way. They want people to treat us correspondingly to the gender that we're sort of acting out. But people are also going to just see us the way that they're going to see us. And we don't have exactly control over that. And we don't need people to affirm everything about us, but we need people who will be with us. We need people who will understand us and therefore accept us, regardless of whether they affirm everything about us. That's something like what got me through that time. Mm. I guess to cap it off, what brought back the gender dysphoria actually began too because of my life changes. I started thinking that maybe I wanted to get married, which, you know, for all the reasons that I've mentioned so far, like was a very uncomfortable realization. It was like I have this deep admiration for, for women and this desire to have, you know, spend a life, uh, you know, my life with one woman to like, you know, to have this exclusive and special relationship. And, and now, oh my gosh, I even want to have kids. Like, where is that coming from? You know, again, like these little glimpses that I had kind of back in that LSD trip, I was starting to realize like, this has been with me. I've always really longed for this, but I was just absolutely terrified of all the implications that would come with if I would be a husband and a father, I'd have to be a more competent person. It wasn't necessarily that I had to be a man, you know, a man in like some really specific way. I have to behave in certain ways. It was just like, I need to just be like an adult. I need to be, you know, competent. And a lot of this was much more, I think, deep down, not as much that I wanted to be a woman, but I wanted to kind of remain in sort of childhood and transition kind of provides in a way, you know, a way for you to also be sort of treated more gently in that way. It brought up a lot of fear, just a lot of fear. I don't think that I can overcome all of the expectations that will be involved if I'm to be a husband and father. That was sort of the thing too, because there was an actual goodness there 
to like why I was so troubled by it all was because there was something that was so good for me to have this motivation to realize that I have this source of motivation. If I had a, a wife, how good would that be? If I had kids, how good would that be? I didn't give myself a chance to think how good would it be? Because before I could even have a chance to really like think about that and kind of like dream about, you know, a, a more fulfilled life like that, I had to confront all of these fears first. And so that's kind of where I'm at now, hoping that I'll, you know, meet someone. And as a final question, mate, let's reflect on this mental health journey. So if you could go back and talk to the four or five-year-old Enyada who was making up games to role-play being a girl or the Enyada who was depressed and trying to deal with gender dysphoria or the Enyada who was transitioning and presenting as female and having doubts about being trans in the first place, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Ooh, that's... um. Yeah, I thought about that. And that's a that is a tough question. I mean, on the one hand, maybe I'm thinking a little too literally, like, well, a kid isn't going to understand like what I'm trying to say. But I don't even know that part of me thinks like, I don't know what I would say, because I almost because part of me doesn't even know what I was like. What was I like before, you know, when I was really young, and like, before I was actually thinking about these things, when I was just having a raw experience of life, think that I just needed someone to like be there and be curious. I think that's actually what I would say is that if I could go back and see little Enyata, that I would actually be curious about what I'm like and find out first before I would give myself advice. Because I think that it, that is ultimately what people need is they need someone to be with them. We talked about your mental health journey, Enyada. I want to talk very briefly about your writing journey. So tell me why you've started writing about your journey from transition to detransition on Substack and the issues you wanted to cover here. I've been kind of already thinking about it for a while, but when the Detrans Awareness Day webinar came out back in March, it was great. I loved all of the presentations there, but there were so few men who spoke, and yet the men who did speak caused people to be kind of saying like, well, we need to hear more from D-trans men. And that seemed to inspire D-trans men to get together and create our own Discord server and then start writing Substack articles. And so I kind of, you know, joined in with that sort of wave that happened just a couple of months ago. And I've had it in mind to want to share these things because I really have like, when I really pulled through the gender dysphoria that I was describing recently, like that was only about a year ago when I like finally like pushed through those waves of dysphoria to where I would say that I don't really have full on episodes of it. It's more of a background kind of mild sort of thing. So I thought, I think it is about time. I've gained a lot from the D-trans community and from my experience of overcoming it to a great extent. And so I just, yeah, I wanted to stick to the mental health side of things and to the story side of things because I don't know a lot about the politics. I don't really know that much about the medical establishment, but I feel like there's not enough info about how do you overcome gender dysphoria. And I'm also much better at writing than speaking too. So if you find me to be meandering, listening to me, but you think that there's something worthwhile to what I'm saying, then I think you might find me a little more straightforward in my writings. <laughs> you said about your detransition, mate, in an article, and I'll read the quote out. You said, it was not an immediate fix. It simply removed an obstacle to healing. Recognition of that obstacle mm. was not an immediate recognition of how to heal from this suffering. It meant I was now engaging with that suffering, sometimes falling, sometimes rising. So in essence, did it allow you to feel like 
the rest of society and being able to manage the daily ups and downs, weekly ups and downs with our mental health and not be locked in a trauma state? Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. It's actually being in the fight, which is, you know, at first can seem like now everything is even worse. Like before I was just going along with the transition and I wasn't confronting all of the disgust that I have toward my sex. And now I like am all of the time. So like, it seems like it's more, but during that time when I was transitioning, I was having to keep large portions of the reality of, of who I am away. So on the one hand, it is more painful to begin engaging with that suffering. But, you know, like I said, the detransitioning is just getting rid of an obstacle. That transitioning was an obstacle for me to engage with that. And after, you know, I can, I can show by my life that it can at first seem like it's worse, but you end up coming into yourself and saying like, yeah, this is my male body and I don't have to tone certain things down about the way that I actually am physically and a lot of the psychosocial, I don't know, stuff around that. Like I, I can just actually be myself. I know you're not as engaged in the politics, but why did you feel so much solidarity or commonality with people like Tulip, people like Limpida? What experiences of theirs or stories of theirs did you take to help you feel less alone? And why do you think, and this is an opinion I, I have, and I, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts, that detransitioned males or males who have detransitioned are probably in the top two or top three categories in air quotes of issues that are really highly stigmatized so i think male domestic abuse victim survivors and male sexual abuse victim survivors are sort of in the top three and you are or your stories are in that top three why do you think there's so much stigma as well yeah that is huge and honestly I can attempt to say things about that, but I think one of the things about it is like, I actually, sometimes I'll feel, I can feel tension in my body just even thinking about how do I begin to describe this? Because just like you say, I mean, it is stigmatized to talk about ways in which men receive prejudice just for being men and for even for being masculine. Like that sounds utterly crazy to some people. And then detransition itself, it's a very controversial and stigmatized among a lot of groups and put those together. And there's a lot to be dealing with all at once as both D-trans and, and a man, a man who deals, you know, already with specific sensitivities of like fear of being associated with bigotry because I'm a man being associated with all sorts of dangerous things. And so speaking about it itself is like the problem in some way. I already feel this tension and sort of inner conflict every time I try to think about talking about it. That leads me sometimes to want to just be like, I don't know how to describe this to you. I just want to know that you're going to be willing to listen to me. Can you just be aware of like what a conflict this is? Can you be aware of how much this is costing me to try to to explain this? And so there is always, I think, been something to this effect where like men speaking about their problems or their feelings is sort of dismissed as like, on the one hand, like I think people usually will first think that it's like, well, why don't you just like, you know, man up? and stop being so emotional. That's usually what people think. It's like just that. And there does exist that. There are people who are like that. Not as but much then there's anymore, also, mate. Not as much anymore. Yeah, not as much. Yeah. And what seems a lot more common, at least, you know, where I am in the world is like 
is more men don't talk about your problems. You don't have problems. There we go. Like, the there are people <laughs> who have, yeah, there are people who have problems in the world. There are women, there are these minorities. And You're stuff. the most privileged people these, there is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not one of these people who's like anti SJW. Like I necessarily, like, I mean, I think there's all sorts of crazy stuff in that kind of SJW sort of far left world maybe, but you know, at the same time, I'm not, in principle, opposed to caring about minorities. It's just that a lot of the rhetoric around that is very toxic because it's not really getting to the heart of like, what is prejudice? It's saying, these are the people who we're allowed to acknowledge are prejudiced. And just doing that opens up prejudice toward people who aren't acknowledged as being the recipients of prejudice. And that is related to attachment issues, like right there weirdly enough, like happening on a much more mass scale, because what it is, is, I mean, this is such a key point, actually, for me personally, and for this issue, when it comes to, you know, I usually learn about this in the context of trauma is how do you get traumatized? Well, usually something really bad happens, but it's not actually about what happens. It's about, first of all, how you react to it. So if you're reflecting on it, you want to say, well, you don't want to go, well, it wasn't really that bad. It's like, well, what about how you felt about it? were you traumatized by it? Was it traumatizing to you? You know, and then you can say, you know, well, why would it have affected you that much? And, but what really determines like whether something, a particular event was traumatizing or not was, could you turn to somebody and tell them about it? Were they open to hearing about your pain? Did they take it seriously or did they dismiss you? You know, did they not want to hear about it or did they try to give you some sort of, you know, easy advice as if it was no big deal? And I mean, just the fact that men would be so ashamed to talk about what they're struggling with, shame gets lumped on top of that. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, why don't men talk more about their feelings? It's like, we're trying to, but you <laughs> keep telling us not to. <laughs> so it's like, I mean, I feel like in, in a lot of ways, that's just like the tip of the iceberg of the things that just make it sometimes impossible to talk about. And I don't know, I'll, I'll probably stop there, but that's something I'm really hoping to like articulate more in detail. We've come to our final topic of conversation on the podcast, Enyada, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It's a quick fire and general natter and chat about mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? It's um, a bit mixed. You know, I'm always dealing with stuff, but, uh, you know, I always feel like I'm making progress. Good stuff, man. What age do you think you were when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you're having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I think really explicitly, probably when I was 15 or so. And what was the story behind that? You know, just being in high school and I had all these inklings for a long time. Like, like I said, I mean, even in third grade, like I had like a very like unignorable sort of episode of depression. But I still kind of wanted to dismiss it a lot of times like that. It's just in my head. And it's like, well, actually, yeah, of course, it's in my head. Like, that's the point. But I remember when I was about 15 or so, I don't know exactly what it was. I think it was just that depression and anxiety became such a day to day sort of thing by that mm -hmm. time that I was constantly aware of it. And it felt like I like never had any like break from it that eventually, I don't know, I just felt like there's no way to not acknowledge this. And then tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health. So who was it with? What impact did it have? And did it feel like a big moment and like a part of you had changed or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other hand, did it feel like quite small, insignificant and normal to do? 
I don't know exactly what would have been the first, but I definitely had many times in high school when like, you know, I would have these kind of like, oh, you too sort of moment, you know, with a friend, mainly this one, my probably my closest friend, just talking about it and realizing, I think it was because I like, you know, we had a psychology class in high school, which I actually didn't end up getting to take, but I wanted to. And just learning that psychology is a field of study and realizing that a lot of things, you know, that I dealt with were not just me wanting to make excuses for not doing things, although that's, you know, there's the possibility of doing that. I thought, no, this, these are legitimate issues. And eventually I did start to show certain actually um, gender nonconforming things in high school. And actually one of the teachers noticed because of something I wrote that they actually set me up with one of the counselors at high school in high school just to talk about it. So that was also one of the most kind of explicit sort of moments of like mental health talk. What triggers do you have in life that affect your mental health? So it could be things people say to you, a sound, a sensation, a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Triggers would be feeling like I'm not paid attention to when I say something. Um, that's a major like attachment kind of thing. And also I've tended to kind of like narrow down like the building blocks of my fears as I don't know how serious this is, but it's like awkwardness of just like, I don't have control over my reactions to things kind of like social life being sort of unpredictable and they're not knowing if I'm going to pick up on the cues that gets me really like you know I psych myself out about that like I'm not going to know what to do and then having people be suspicious of me is a huge thing usually people aren't being suspicious of me but I'm usually like on edge about it and there are just all kinds of things that if I do I'm like questioning myself, like, are they going to think that I mean something else? Or are they going to think that I'm doing something wrong? And then if you bring all of those together, in a lot of ways, it's honestly being around females and being worried about how I'm going to be perceived. And conversely, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Well, there's definitely my faith. There's prayer, you know, bringing any of my deepest feelings to God. There's having relationships, working on good relationships. I mean, is, that might seem obvious, but if that's something that I don't have, that's so basic and necessary. One really great technique that, if you would call it a technique that someone pointed out I wrote in the article is titrating, is like just kind of have this attitude going into things that, you know, I need to improve my social skills or I need to confront certain things about the reality of my body and of being a man. And I can't do all of this at once. This is potentially too overwhelming to me. So I'm going to try a little bit. I'm going to kind of either examine myself or I'm going to go out and stop overthinking things and go and do something social and get inevitably triggered a little bit by it, but hopefully just a little bit. And then I'll learn from that each time and then retreat, you know, get triggered a little. So it's, you know, try, get triggered just a little bit, retreat, recover and repeat. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. I actually can't think of any books. Plays, films, uh, podcasts, TV shows? I was going to say podcasts. Yeah. The Place We Find Ourselves is a podcast that has been the most influential for me in much more recent times. It is a Christian mental health podcast. So if anyone is you know, not sure about that, I have been told that people didn't find the religious elements to be overly intrusive. Or you can tell if you look at the titles of episodes, if it's going to be on, of a more religious theme. That has just taught me so much about, about trauma. And uh, it's largely centered around story work, engaging your story. 
and then also the YouTuber called Crappy Childhood Fairy. It's a silly sounding name, but she's really good. Deals with like CPTSD kind of stuff about just like ongoing difficult childhood circumstances. And she's great because she is very sympathetic and understanding, but she's also not going to flatter you. She'll be kind of tough love from time to time. And uh, I think she does a, has a good balance. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? I think that maybe just like spreading more of an attitude of like that men, you know, actually need to be listened to. I don't know. I feel like that's a basic aspect of it. Like, let's not be so dismissive. I feel weird sort of saying that because I don't want it to be like, listen to men. I don't want that to be a slogan. I don't want it to be like, you know, now it's like uncritically just like, it's hard to organize things on a collective kind of scale like that, I guess. But like for there to be some understanding that like it's difficult for men to sometimes navigate these things because of the social realities of like how men are expected to be on both far kind of right and liberal sides. And like, I don't know, let's sort of be like, understanding that maybe as a society we actually don't understand what it really is that's making men have such a hard time with mental health i feel like if there was just more of a sense of we don't know what's going on that would be a step in the right direction let's hope you make those steps and look forward to the future mate it's been a pleasure it's been a privilege and yada thank you for coming on the just checking podcast mate thanks for having me appreciate it Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thank you to Enyorda for being my third male who has detransitioned on the podcast. I now think the time is to let these boys and all the other boys that they speak for some time to breathe, heal and grow. So I won't be doing another episode with a male who has detransitioned for a good while. I'll chuck some links to where you can follow Enyorda and read his substack in the show notes. And I'll also sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family about it. Write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts if you're feeling generous. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can visit our GoFundMe if you want to make a one-off donation. If you want to buy a ticket to the next Just Checking In Live, please do so. That is on our link tree. There's a link right at the top so you can buy a ticket. Hope to see you guys there October the 15th. I'll be plugging it a lot more as these pods go on. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it is always okay to vent.